So Ishmael Beer, um, author of Little Family, uh, one read book of the month for April 2021. Thank you for coming to talk to us uh, on one read. Thank you. Thank you, Molara, for having me. I'm very excited about it. How are you doing? How are you doing? What's the time like where you are, where eight hours are ahead, I gather? Yes, it's it's midday. It's midday here uh, in California. Um, the weather is not so promising today, so it's not <laughs> what you hear about California, but things are good. Things are good. That's good. That's good. Well, it's evening here. I lived in Los Angeles when I was a child. So it's a place that is um, very close to my heart, you know, oh, so California. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's start with the questions. So it's only going to be for about 30 minutes. All right. Yes. Just um, hopefully we can get a conversation going. Um, you, I understand you used to live in Nigeria, actually. Yes, I did. I did. My, uh, my, my wife, my partner, she uh, worked for the United Nations. Uh, and so she was, at the time, she was stationed in Nigeria. So we live in Abuja. Uh, all of my family, uh, my, my three kids, we live in Nigeria. And actually, my eldest daughter, who's now seven, even had a, a Nigerian uh, accent, English accent for a while. <laughs> So it was, and I enjoyed my time very much uh, because of, 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 of my, my partner, I was able to live in Nigeria. I'd always been very curious about living in Nigeria, particularly for the art scene, the writing in particular. So it was wonderful to be able to experience that, you know. Yeah, that's wonderful. So in what ways would you say perhaps that Nigeria has filtered into your writing and perhaps even this novel? No, yes, tremendously. You know, I think every place that I've lived always has a way of uh, finding itself into your imagination, uh, if you allow it. And because I live in places with such open-mindedness, that always allows me. So Nigeria played a very strong role in, in Little Family, uh, in what I imagine, also what I observe, and in how people are the merchants. You know, while I was writing this book, we also lived in uh, Mauritania, then we lived in Senegal, then we lived in Nigeria, then we, uh, in Sierra Leone, my country. So all of these places played a very strong role in how, in fact, I was on some um, um, a literary conversation uh, some months back, and one of the interviewers was a Nigerian woman who swore that even though the book is in an unnamed country, that it was in Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite interesting to, to see yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. I mean, that's one of the striking things about Little Family, the fact that this is a story that could have taken place in any African country. And you've just mentioned Mauritania and Senegal, and that also maybe because of the coastal, the coastal uh, setting also. Uh, and yeah. so I got the sense of, you know, very Africa, West African countries, especially. But this this does strike one as a as a story that could have taken place in any African uh, country, really. And um, in that in that respect, what has it meant having a little family read on the One Read app uh, all across Africa this month? Oh, it's it's been an honor and and really uh, and a blessing, you know, because I for me, you know, I started writing because I really wanted to give context to the humanity of Black Africa in the way we're portrayed in literature. Uh, for a while, I think that space was given to so many other people 
who spoke about how we dreamt, how we lived, how we suffer, and all the in-betweens, you know? And so I really started writing to, to correct that, to give context to that, and to have uh, my own people uh, read uh, some sensitivities and sentiments that are so familiar to them and have that interaction on the One Read app already as it's been read this month was really fascinating because then I didn't have to explain so many underlying things, so many decisions that I made uh, in my craft made sense uh, for the readers. I didn't have to explain so much to them. So that was really wonderful. And to perhaps uh, most importantly, to take the story back to where it originated from really. You know, so that's been the most uh, amazing thing for me. That's great to hear. How did you happen upon this story or how did the story happen upon you? Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's one in both, I guess. Um, when, the way I, I go about writing is that I usually have a question that I want to answer and an idea that I want to explore. And the idea that I wanted to explore in this novel was the question of freedom, of liberty what it means to be free in any given contemporary African setting nowadays, you know, as a young person trying to build your sense of uh, yourself, what your value system is, uh, as you live between this, in this environment where there are competing ideas of what's coming from the outside and then what's also in the in, on, on the inside, what your traditions are and some that you don't want anything to do with and how do you define what that means for you? So that was the question that I wanted to answer. And I decided that to do so, I needed to employ three uh, characters that would sort of, uh, through their lives and through their existence, I'll be able to see if I can answer this question. And more importantly, I wanted it to be from the point of view of a young black African girl who grows into womanhood through the, uh, the, the course of the book, uh, because I also wanted to touch on the idea of what femininity means uh, as you grow up, where I think at a very young age, you already see people trying to decide how you should express that. So I observe all of these things and I wanted to answer that question. And so that's how the book came about. Really. And how much of a conscious decision was it to focus uh, in this novel on what some might term uh, the, the lowest of the low in society, the marginalized, the vulnerable? Uh, how mm. much of a you know conscious decision was that, that these were the people that you wanted to focus on in this book? And um, what um, were you trying to achieve with that? Well, you know, uh, one straight answer is that I, I come from that. I am no longer that, but I come from the lowest of the low. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm one of the very, very few writers who come from very, very bottom of society. But in addition to that, in my imaginative space and observance, uh, when you come from the bottom of any society or when you are the margins of any uh, group of community or existence, it gives you an insight into what is above you, but also you already live in what is below you, right? You're already living in that. And oftentimes I think people who are at the top of society do not really enter the spaces of those who are the mergers of it. So the people who are the merging actually are the most uh, inquisitive, the most intelligent, the most interesting, if I would put it. The most open, the most open that, also, the most open, so open sometimes to the humanity of others. Absolutely, because they have to navigate back and forth. And they are the ones who are the most astute observers of society because they see the cracks, they suffer because of the cracks in society, right? So every day they're trying to find loopholes into how they can exist and function into this. So I wanted to use that to show people, but also most importantly, 
and 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 I believe that in in Africa, in Black Africa right now, I think we have a very elitist sort of society. We have a very <laughs> whether we like it or not, this is the truth. And we kind of then we ascribe intelligence, knowledge, creativity only to those people who are at the top already, right? Yeah. And we think that the person who's at the bottom cannot have that. You know, I remember as a young boy coming out of Sierra Leone from a very remote village that nobody's ever heard of. And uh, people did not expect anything from me. And if I sounded intelligent, they were like, oh, that's surprising that you're intelligent. As if, as if intelligence was only in Freetown or in Lagos or <laughs> you know, in, in other places, you know. So I wanted to write a story that really uh, looks at people who supposedly are at the bottom, but actually, uh, when it comes to the human expression of how you want to be, they're actually not. When it comes to the monetary value of things and how you exist, obviously they are, but the way they, 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 they live within these margins and how they're able to go back and forth and so malleable and also how they have empathy. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite striking. So I wanted to, to explore that. Thank you. Let's, let's look at the concept of dignity. I mean, uh, following up on from what you've just said, I mean, this is the kind of story that could have degenerated into a kind of cliched, uh, quote unquote, African story about poverty and degradation, but that doesn't happen. We have Elimane who reads and studiously guards his sense of dignity. Um, perhaps you can flesh out maybe a few of the other ways in which you ensured that the dignity and the humanity of the characters was really what came through and that this did not then become you know, some of those stories that we, we have people arguing about on social media from time to time about, you know, poverty porn and all of that. Mm. Well, obviously I wasn't trying to do any poverty porn because I know also that dignity, it's not, does not belong to uh, people who are the elite or who sort of have a certain uh, class in society. Indeed. Uh, dignity is a naturally acquired thing that you have, you know. Yeah. I grew up in a small village where my grandfather, was a farmer and was a, was a, was a, was a, was an Arabic scholar, but he was the most dignified human being I ever met in my life. You wow. know, it's not something I've also lived uh, throughout my life. I've lived in other places where people are very wealthy, they are very well read, but they don't have dignity. So, mm. so yeah. for me, I've never ascribed poverty to dignity. Now, poverty has a way to diminish your dignity, obviously, right? Because it makes you vulnerable to treat your value system, to embrace things that you may not want to embrace. So I was aware of that, but I wanted to write a story that showed that even in the midst of all of this, human beings will remain human. People will remain happy. People would fall in love. People would banter, they would joke. They would have a way of looking at things that are very beautiful and amazing, even when they have nothing, you know? So that's really what I wanted to anchor it in that area. Because as you rightly mentioned, when people write about us, usually they are unable to see the nuances of the expression of our humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you live in a poor neighborhood, then it's squalor. Everything yeah. is about squalor in, that, in, in your story, right? Mm. <laughs> Which is not necessarily the case, you know? So for me, I really wanted to make sure that that's not what I'm writing about. Um, I'm always trying to write to change how we are perceived. And also I wanted to have people who may necessarily come from places where people don't expect dignity to actually have it, hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and how do we arrive at who we are in whatever level we are in society? 
people have backstories. So yeah. for example, in the case of Eliman, uh, his backstory, the fact that he reads and he does that, you can already put together that he comes from a family that had uh, uh, sort of imbued that in him at a very young age, yeah. because he doesn't read with the, with the strenuous behavior of somebody who learned later on. Mm. He loves yeah. reading, even when he's trying to survive, he wants to read, you know what I mean? So. Uh, and these people, and these, um, the characters, they have ingenuity, they have beauty, they have a sense of community, they look out for each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the thing also that I think you find in most places where people are struggling and where they are sort of trying to make sense of why they are where they are in society. There comes about sort of a, um, a common understanding of who they are, a way to safeguard themselves against uh, other things, other elements that may try to uh, demoralize them even more. So therefore comes a real sense of empathy and a real sense of family and community in the sense that it's, it's not transactional. It's based on wanting to exist as freely as possible or wanting to break free from wherever they are in society. That brings people closer together. There's a kingship that's formed in how people exist, right? So I've observed this and I've seen it. And so I wanted to have these five characters to show you how that is possible and how they go about doing it, how just they are with each other, even though they live in a society that's completely unjust in all kinds of ways, yeah. right? But they have a sense of responsibility. So there again lies the question about the fact that, well, if you live in a society that's unjust, you only have to, to behave that way. Mm. But they did not. They did not come from good family. But yet they created a family that actually has certain uh, values of what a family should be. Right. Mm. So it's, it's, I was trying to break that idea that uh, just because you grew up within a certain environment doesn't define who you are. Right. Indeed, indeed. Um, followers of writings by uh, writers from Africa and readers in general will be familiar with your own very powerful life story. And um, when we think about, you know, the life you've gone on to live, and it's, it's quite a leap to international um, celebrated author internationally. Do you think you were always destined to be a writer? <laughs> I, I'm actually not quite sure if I was destined to be a writer. Uh, perhaps, but I, I did not grow up as somebody who, who grew up to sort of thinking that I'm going to be a writer. I did not because the way I grew up was more uh, education. And when my parents sent me to school before, you know, the collapse and everything, uh, it was more that you go to school so that you can change your economic status. It wasn't go to school so that you can discover what you love to do, what makes you happy. That was not part of the conversation, you know. So, but I remember at a very young age that I was more interested when I read something or when I wrote an essay than a math problem or, or, any, or any other thing, you know, because I felt like it gave me freedom to think and do things and write and play with words. So I was interested in that at a very young age. Now I really started to, to, to write because, you know, I wanted to correct certain things about how somebody like me from the background that I was coming from was being perceived. And so from my writing for me really came out of that uh, frustration to give context to who I am. But most importantly, because I did not have anything to prove about my existence. Uh, for example, when I was adopted in a family in the United States, which is how I came to live in the United States, 
after uh, what had happened in my country. Yeah. Um, I arrived and I only had my passport and even that was by luck. I had nothing. I basically arrived at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York with just a passport in hand. And my adopted family tried to get me into schools. Nobody would take me into any school because I could not provide a report card to show that I had been in school prior. And so I was trying to explain to people, listen, when you're running from war, you're not really thinking about your report card, right? To, <laughs> to give to, to some school administrator later on. So my first year's writing really came about writing an essay that was titled, Why I Do Not Have a Report Card because everybody wanted one. Hmm. And then I did not have other subsequent documents. So I started writing from what I remember from my life. And I realized that for me, words had become that sacred. They had become a way to teach people and to give people an understanding of who I had been prior to when they encountered me. You know? so, so that became quite serious for me. So that's how I really arrived at writing. Um, yeah. Great, great. How long did it take to write Little Family and perfect the novel that the world is enjoying today? I usually, every book that I've written, usually uh, I, I try to take at least two, three years to write it, three years. Uh, this one, Little Family was three years. And the first six months to eight months, I basically walk around just thinking about the characters, uh, their age, their gender, and the environment that I want them to exist in. And then one day I would just sit down after eight months and I would just start writing. And I would write maybe for about a year, uh, just not trying to correct anything. And then afterwards I'll go back and look. And the reason why I don't make myself uh, an ending ahead of time, because I feel like it takes away the magic of storytelling itself. Then you're no longer surprised. But when you allow the characters, I'm very character oriented, when you allow the characters to just tell their story through you, you kind of make conclusions, you arrive at places that you were not thinking about at the beginning. So that's, that's, how, that's usually my process. Uh, so it took me three years to, 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 to perfect it. But what was very interesting for me in this particular book and was really uh, eye-opening for me is that my lead character uh, was a young woman that, yeah. uh, that, that you know, she, then she became a woman. And so I had to learn how to write from the point of view of a woman without sounding like a uh, what a cliche mm -hmm. African man. <laughs> exactly. What a man's expectation. Luckily for me, I have a very uh, remarkable uh, partner. My wife is, is brilliant. So she's usually my first reader. So she looks at it and she can tell me. So I learned a lot about women, even though and, I have- And also not visualized from uh, a male gaze, so to speak. Absolutely. I was so worried about that because I have two daughters. So I was like, I don't want to write a book that sort of fit into the cliche of what they are, you know, uh, whatever I'd grown up that has left in my psyche about what women are, uh, what, you know. And so I really, and I also wanted to write about, you know, because often when people write about African women, sometimes they write about them as if they are those side, they don't have agency. I have never met, uh, maybe I'm just in, in that particular, uh, African, Black African women are the strongest human beings you can find in the world. I agree with you. They are the most intelligent. So I don't know why people write about it. So for me, I was like, and also I have two of them that are growing up. So I didn't want to write a character that was like, I wanted to write a character that is independent in the way they express themselves, in the way they talk, irrespective of where they are in society, you know? And that was the agenda. 
Well done. And um, you've, you've canceled one of the questions I was going to ask you because you've already answered it, which would have been about the portrayal of the girl child in this book. Now, let's, uh, let's talk about the narrative style. Mm. You know, you, you, there are several viewpoints and things like that. Um, what kind of uh, choices did you, I mean, just very briefly, what kind of choices do you make, did you make about narrative style? Well, I, I, I started it with an invitation. The book starts with an invitation to the general reader, uh, uh, whoever is entering the world of these five characters. Yeah, it starts with them. you. It starts with you. With yes, it starts with you. It's pointing like if you were to walk and so it's basically the characters inviting you into their world. And from the get go, you are told that they are going to tell you their story the way they choose to tell their story, not how you want to hear the story. And for me, this is very important because I want the characters that I'm using to also have their own agency. Just as I'm giving agency to voices, to names that are not in literature. So that was very important to me to open that way. And the other thing that I, I really used, which comes from the oral tradition background, uh, is I wanted people to understand that I didn't need the heavy gears of the backstory. You know, I know that some readers were like, well, I wanted to know more about Eliman or Namsa or, or Kudimata, um, I did not want to give their backstory so much because for me, I believe the way somebody functions in the present says a lot about what their past is. Mm. And you do not need to go and tell all that past, you know? So when you look at the characters, you can tell what type of families they come from, what they've been through by just the way they exist in the present, you know? For example, if when Namsa sees a car going by, the way she looks at it, she's next to it. You yeah. know that she's never sat in a car before. Yeah. That says a lot about who she is. I don't have to say, well, she grew up in that part. She never seen a car. I don't need to tell you all of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what is really interesting in the beginning, people were like, I don't know about that. And when people read the book and I'll ask them, well, tell me what you think Namsa's background was or Eliman or Kudimata or Pindi or Devui people's responses has been exactly what the backstory that I had in mind writing was. So I did not necessarily need to give them. And secondly, my choice for doing that, which comes from the oral tradition, is that when you give people a story to read, you want them to be part of that story. You want to give them spaces to have their own imaginative capacity in that story. Yeah. As opposed to giving them everything, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, by the time Namza is having the nightmares, you can already guess, you know, have some guesses as to why, even before you read on. Yeah. So, and then the very vivid descriptions uh, in, the, in the book, uh, for instance, the, the scene where they go to the ferry, you can, you can visualize, you can see everything, even as a reader, in minute, detail in a very livable and living way. How were you able to create um, these characters to be so fully realized in this way, to just jump out of the page at the reader and seems and, and appear so real? And you can see everything they're doing. You can almost picture it, the logistics yeah. of the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that it worked out because, you know, whenever I'm writing every book that I've written it's always been my take has always been that I want the reader to not only imagine the space, but to also smell it, yeah. to hear the sounds of it, 
So all the, 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 the sort of five senses kick in when the reader is reading about certain characters so that they can actually be in that world. You know, I believe that as a writer, that's your task to do that. You want your, your reader to be in the story. And I derived this from oral tradition that I grew up in. When somebody is telling you a story orally, because you can't rely on going back to look at page five or page six, they capture your imagination and keep you in the story if they're a good storyteller. My grandmother was such where if she's telling you a story around the fire, if it was a scary story, if she, if she coughs, you would, you would fall over on the, in the fire, you know, because there was so much in the story that you did not know, you were not nowhere else, you know? So for me, I bring those techniques through language, through sounds, through expressions, through very, very nitty gritty minute details so you can see and feel and it can trigger things in you that takes you and keeps you in that space. Like even how people whistle, how people hum, yeah. how the wind makes people feel, how people walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, very well done, thank you. Now, names, I think. Right, because it's not just the, the imaginative capacity, it's also the visual and the auditory sounds that are important. Indeed, indeed. Now, um, names, uh, if you can talk a bit about, you know, choosing the names for your characters. I think Shadrach the Messiah talks about, raises some difficult questions around names and it got me thinking that I wanted to ask you about how you made the choices of the names of your characters. Uh, yes, you know, I think I, I wanted to, you know, the idea of names for my characters, they really uh, came from and uh, the places that I've lived as I was writing the book. For example, Eliman is a name that comes from Mauritania. You have a lot of people call Eliman in Mauritania and I like the sounding of the name. And also the fact that you cannot really place it anywhere, you know, yeah. but it can also it's be everywhere. Name. It sounds romantic. It is also, exactly. So it also fits his character because he's trying to be a very gentlemanly type of guy, even yes. though he doesn't have the tools to make him feel like what he has that persona. So I wanted him to have that name. Kudimata is also a name that comes from Senegal, Mauritania border area, you know? And I like the way the names sounded. When I'm writing also, I'm always also trying to bring names into literature because I now have that uh, statue. I want to bring names into literature that will replace the ones that are in our psyche. Mm. You know, that will replace the Johns and the Smiths and all of that, you know? Yeah. I want to bring Eliman, Kudimata, Namsan, Devui, so that when people talk about literature, when my daughters or my son grows up and read literature, they could see themselves in it, right? Yeah. That, so, so for me, that's how I think about names that I, that I bring in literature. So, and Devui and Pindi, these are names that come from generally West Africa, particularly in the Sierra Leone area that comes from there. And Namsa as well comes from like Guinea and places like that. So I looked at names from different areas and tried to bring it, but also, I'm trying to really do a very black African thing, which is trying to show what are our names and what does it do to us? Mm. And I'll be very honest with you. One of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm really um, um, sort of moved by with, with Nigerians, you know, is that how Nigerian people have their own traditional names. They never change them mm. to fit anybody's discomfort of wanting to pronounce X, Y, Z. Yeah. You see what I mean? Yeah. And how proud, and when I lived in Nigeria, I was quite impressed by that, you know, and even before that, I've always been quite impressed by the fact that people will keep. So I wanted this, no this novel to also have that, to push for that. And that discussion that I had with Shadrach the Messiah about names is also to 
to undo that sort of colonial mindset we have yeah. to have these big colonial names to make ourselves look sophisticated mm. is that we already come from a history that's sophisticated. Indeed. We don't need to take anybody's name <laughs> from that, you know. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. Now, when reading this novel, one uh, thinks about some uh, books, canonical books in world literature, uh, such as, I I'm sure you get this sometimes, George Orwell's Animal Farm, because of the subject matter, the themes and the characters and you know, to a certain extent, maybe a lot of the flies, but mostly one thinks of a novel like Animal Farm. Can you talk a bit about what are your own uh, literary influences? Hmm. Well, I obviously, I grew up reading all of these things. If you go to any, uh, if you're from a former British colony, you go to schools, you grow up reading some of this stuff. If you have access to books, you know, like I did much later in my life, I remember reading uh, animal farm you know and <laughs> and singing the beast of england and all those songs yeah that. same here same here and i cried when the horse died yeah absolutely you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway but for me i think what 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 i what i i, I try to 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 do uh over the years even before i became a writer once i had access to book is that i try to read a lot of african black african writers mm. And there are some that have meant more to me than others, you know? Yeah. And um, obviously I read the Wallis Oyengas, the Chinua Achebes, uh, and I, uh, but one of the people that really shifted my way of thinking and how I wanted to write uh, was uh, Albert Camus. Oh, Albert Camus, yeah. Yes, yes, Algerian. Uh, yeah, French the stranger, the stranger. Exactly, yeah. So, and the reason why is because one of the reasons uh, there's a saying from him that I'll paraphrase it, which is that the role of a writer is not to represent those who make history, but mm. rather those who suffer history. So you see, so for me, that really changed the way I wanted to write because I thought to myself, well, I come from those who suffer history. Mm. And often even in literature, uh, they are not there, you know? Because think about it, when we think about the people that, until people like me came along, frankly, when we think about most people who are writers and well-known writers, they already come from a higher social class in the countries they're coming from, right? Let's be honest. You know, either their, 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 their parents were professors or maybe their parents were well-to-do travel. They, so usually people consume literature because they already live in a certain environment. Yeah. And then here I come from, <laughs> the bottom of the pit, you know, still curious about. So in a way for me, I, I, I'm writing to, 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 to bring us also in the, in the narrative structure, not just as, as passive observers of history, but also as participants yeah. in history itself, you know. So, so, so I would say about Camus, and then of course I like, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, the South African writer, Jim Coetzee, he's also another, uh, I'm a big fan of his work because okay. he really is, a, is a master of moving, uh, you know, sentences, short sentences that says a lot. Yeah. You know, uh, in one page you will get a lot more than you know. And so, and and you know, I, I've read. Uh, I, I like uh, Edwidge Danticat, who's a Haitian uh, writer. Yeah, I know her work. Yeah. Yeah, I love her. So you know, I I, I so I've, I'm taking. I, I read a lot. I think when I whenever I teach writing, which is what. 
uh, students don't like to hear whenever they ask me, so how can I be a good writer? And I ask them, well, how many books did you read this month? And they don't like that question. I'm like, well, you're not gonna be a good writer yeah. if you're not gonna read, you know? <laughs> so, so I read a lot and, and uh, I, I read everything that's, that's out there, the Simbenis and the old ones and the new ones. And, you know, we have so many new young voices on the African continent coming up right now, you know? Um, yeah. That's great. What are you reading currently? Currently, I'm actually rereading Zala by Sembeni. Yeah, um, Usman Sembeni, yeah. Semben, Usman, yes. depending, yeah. yeah. Usman Sembeni, Zala, that's the one I was reading. I, you know, I was trying to organize my books a little bit, yeah. uh, preparing to, for a move. So I was, and I came across it and I said, oh, I need to read that again. So I'm actually reading that right now. Okay. Have you uh, seen the, the one that I'm expecting? Also, I remember the film of that very, 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 very vividly. Have you seen the film of Zala? I have seen the film, yes, yes. Okay, yes. yeah. So very fascinating. But I'm expecting to read something that I've been waiting for to come out in, in, the, in the US because I couldn't find it anywhere. It's, uh, it's uh, Remy. Remy, uh, there's a, a Namibian writer. He has Remy a book. Gamide. Yes, the internal audience of one. Of one. I've been yeah. waiting to read it. I've read little things, bits here and there online, but I've been really waiting to read it. So I'm hoping it will arrive any day now so I can read it. Great, great. And writing? What are you writing? Uh -huh. uh, I'm working on uh, my next book, which will be my fourth book. And as much as I've avoided it, I think it's time to have a sequel of the first book. Uh, people have always been curious about where the book ended and what happened after. And I think that's, that's the next book. So I'm working on a so sequel. So a sequel to A Long Way Gone. Yes, that's oh, currently. Wow. <laughs> so that's that's my next project. That's what I'm currently working on. And obviously, I'm always working on other things, but that's the primary one at the moment. Great, great. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's been so illuminating. Thank you. It's been likewise. It's, it's a wonderful uh, conversation. I, I, I enjoyed and your your very very excellent and amazing questions. So and it's been. Thank you so much. Great. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Enjoy your evening. And <laughs> Love to I hope. Uh, <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.